Welcome to episode 34 of the Going For Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. On today's podcast, I welcome Andy May to the show. In this episode, Andy and I discuss gathering intel and assembling data into an actionable game plan. Andy elaborates on what it means to move in when the conditions are right, the importance of in-season scouting, setups for midday rut hunts, and so much more. This episode is packed with amazing stories from Andy's experiences in the field. But before we get into this episode, I want to mention that I have a new heavy metal theme design available in t-shirt or hoodies. I'll put a link in the description if you want to pick one up and help support this channel. Lastly, I want to thank everyone listening for the continued support. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube or your favorite audio platform. And finally, I want to give a shout out to Uncle Lou at Stealth Outdoors for helping to make this podcast possible. Check out Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com. Stealth Outdoors just released a new jacket and shirt in their innovative smoke camo just in time for the 2023 season. While you're visiting Stealth Outdoors, don't forget to pick up some climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, or stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs this season. Stealth your mobile hunting setup by visiting www.stealthoutdoors.com to silence your gear and place an order today. And now, on to the podcast. All right, today on the show, I'm joined by Andy May. Andy, welcome. Hey, buddy. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is a long one in the making. <laughs> yeah, appreciate you coming on, and I know you're busy, and we talked just before we got on live here that you've been a very popular guest, and sometimes you feel like there's not much left to say, but I'm going to hopefully ask some new and or unique questions and try to uh, plumb the depths here and get some new information out of you. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, I've, I've listened to most of your podcasts, and uh, you do a great job. I've really, I really enjoyed them. You're very thorough, and you have uh, you ask great questions, so they're always very informative, very entertaining. So, uh, yeah, man, happy to be here. Uh, sorry we couldn't do it sooner. I was always trying to kind of give the podcast a break for a little bit, and then and do a fresh one with you, and it just just couldn't make it make it work. But we finally did. Here we are now. Yep. <laughs> so, Andy, a little unconventional. I think the majority of my audience is familiar with you. You are, in my opinion, the man, the myth, the living legend. So let's skip the bio and let's get right into the meat and potatoes. What do you say? That sounds good to me, buddy. All right. One of my favorite analogies for deer hunting is that it's like poker. Both of these games are games of incomplete information that involve an element of luck. However, over the long term, Skilled poker players and skilled hunters alike have far more success than those relying on luck alone. So today, that's what I want to focus on, the skills that lead to disproportional success. Okay, sounds good to me. I'm, I'm uh, an ex-serious poker player, so I can relate a little bit. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start out with uh, something that both of those pursuits have in common, and I'd say that's critical thinking skills and assembling pieces of the puzzle from that incomplete information so over the course of the year or maybe even over multiple years what methods are you using to gather this information and most importantly how are you integrating these various pieces of information into an actionable game plan yeah that's a that's a very good question gosh you know i'm kind of trying to gather information by any means necessary i am constantly kind of on the search i guess i was talking to a buddy about it the other day and and we were talking about how we used to hunt you know and how we used to scout we used to find a good area that maybe has some sign and 
and kind of things that come together. And then we would prep a stand or prep a tree or, or mark that tree. And then we would come back, you know, during season and hunt it and, uh, you know, find 30, 40 spots like that. And, you know, yeah, we'd pull a nice, you know, get a nice buck eventually, probably that year, just by being persistent and putting time in. But that's totally changed now. So now I'm constantly on the search for a deer, you know, or a deer or, or an area that tends to produce a, a certain, you know, age class of deer. And then I decide to kind of dive in and, and really learn as much as I can. So I spend quite a bit of time during, uh, you know, the late summer glassing around home. Around home, I have a good mix of kind of broken up country of some woods, some ag, some areas that are really heavy ag, some areas that are really heavy woods with secluded fields and whatnot. So glassing is a part of my process. You know, I don't, I wouldn't, it'd be hard for me to put a percentage on it, but definitely I've picked up some, uh, some deer over the years glassing and just, you know, my area sets up pretty good for it because I hunt in a pretty pressured area. The conventional glassing isn't quite as effective as really getting off the road or getting up in a tree or on a bandage or something where, you know, I can kind of see into these little corners and these little pockets and these little low spots that you can't really see from the road. I think that's where I get a leg up um, on the glassing. It depends on the on the spot, but, you know, sometimes you can glass from the road, but a lot of time I'm trying to look into areas that aren't visible from the road. Um, in addition to that, you know, I do run cameras. I wouldn't say I'm a heavy trail camera guy. You know, I in any given year I'm running anywhere from like 8 to 12 would be like a lot for me, depending on the year. And, you know, I use those to gather information. Most of the time, I use, kind of use them in two different ways. So, I'll get start getting some cameras out now and trying to get more of like an inventory type thing, trying to just pick up a deer of a, you know, at a, a certain age class or a certain caliber of deer that I'm interested in, in chasing, you know, tra- maybe trying to find, you know, one, two, maybe three, uh, you know, something that I could target. And as we get closer to the season, really trying to zero in on, you know, one or two of those to really go after early season. And then aside from that, the majority of my trail camera usage is, is kind of more of like a long-term play. I like getting them into areas and then kind of letting them soak most of the season, if not all of the season, without even checking them and getting the information that way. There are a few, you know, uh, two or three, maybe four, you know, five sometimes that I have kind of maybe rotating through, get them on, you know, a certain spot or a, a scrape or something where I can kind of tell what's going on like during the season depending on the location and I might check those periodically there might be a situation where I have one more closer to a food source or closer to a spot where I can get in and out not really booger things up and I might check those more often but I would say the bulk of the information that I gather that I think helps me is definitely you know in person boots on the ground that's where I'm that's where I get the most confident a trail cam picture can give me a a glimpse, but I like to, you know, really get in there and, and see what's going on and get a feel for what's going on and kind of let, I don't know, let my instincts, let my woodsmanship kind of take over. And that's where I seem to really get dialed in and get things done. I do a lot of, a, a big portion of my scouting, you know, when the season ends, I kind of get out there right when the season ends, when there's still snow and really 
pick apart some stuff to kind of help me kind of get a picture of what was going on in the late season in some of these areas I hunted and see if there's some stuff that I missed. You know, I'm not afraid to dive in and really figure out where these deer are bedding, where they're feeding, and maybe that'll help me, you know, in a year down the road on a late season hunt. Just trying to gather that information. And then as soon as that snow melts, I'm out there again, kind of like phase two of postseason scouting. And that's when I'm just really diving in and really trying to really pick apart these areas, really trying to find beds, find trails, find that sign. And I feel like when that snow melts to right around turkey season, right when the, you know, right around when turkey season starts, that window right there is probably where I gather the bulk of my information that I think helps me, especially like, especially during the rut. You know, that's when I really can kind of pick apart that, that rut sign and, and kind of figure out areas where there were maybe some, some doe groups or good doe population and some bucks, you know, showed up during that time frame. That's a great time to find, you know, beds. And, and I do hunt beds and I, I do, I do focus on the bedding location when I can really narrow it down. Sometimes it's a specific bed. Sometimes it's more of a bedding area. Sometimes I just have the knowledge of like a bedding you know, a region, like a larger area. And I'm really trying to figure it out, but anymore, I won't go back and just throw a sit at that without some sort of confirmation. So during season, I'll go in there and try to kind of check that area, either, either with trail camera, either with glassing or either with getting in there and really trying to see something with my eyes that tells me, you know, this is worth a sit. And I think that's where some of my efficiency has really gone up over the years is that I hunt a lot less. I scout a lot more during the season and it leads to much higher percentage sits. So that, that on the booth scouting postseason is really important, but then I continue that right into the season, right up to the season, right all the way through the season is just lots of boots on the ground scouting and really trying to find something that gives me the confidence that it's worth a sit. So I have kind of morphed into this this um, style of gather information, gather information, and keep gathering until I feel the confidence that it's worth a sit. And that, that gathering information is an accumulation of glassing, trail camera work, uh, you know, before season, trail camera work in season, boots on the ground scouting postseason, boots on the ground scouting in season, and really trying to come up with a game plan and, uh, you know, to take it even further, you know, I've hunted, I've hunted a lot of years around here and I've hunted a lot of years out of state in different areas. And I have a pile of experience and hunts to kind of pull from. And I've talked about this on other podcasts, but I've really kind of honed in, you know, some really good early season areas across the U.S. really and around home. And then also, you know, some really good rut spots, spots where I know, even if I didn't scout a lick, I could go there, you know, in November in Michigan and Ohio and Kentucky and Iowa and Illinois, and I can have a good sit and probably get an arrow and a good animal. And it's just from a pile of experience and years and years of, of doing that. And then when you really start to pay attention to this, I, I notice that, you know, certain areas tend to heat up during certain times of the year. And a lot of times that does revolve around like doe activity and, and the rut, but I've started to capitalize more on individual bucks and learning what they do and where they show up at certain times of the year. And again, once I start zeroing in on that, 
whether it's an individual buck or a certain area that gets hot, that leads to efficiency. So, you know, I got a lot of things going on, kind of stirring in the pot that help. Um, and that kind of I use, I guess, as my my style of hunting. So it's really kind of hard to narrow down, you know, one thing. It's it's ever changing. It's ever moving. It's ever evolving. But I'm always kind of pulling from past experiences, trying to tap into trying to tap into like that instinct of mine too. Like when I don't have things going on and maybe I'm not on a big deer and, you know, some of these plans that I had or some of these areas I thought were going to heat up, maybe they're cold because of, you know, increased hunting pressure or the buck I was after was killed or whatever it is. Then I really try to get in that search mode, that scouting mode and, and just really try to follow my instincts and, um, you know, get on something that way. So that's kind of a long, (laughs) a long winded answer. Uh, Hopefully I answered that all right for you. No, awesome detail there. And one of the things that I definitely want to get into a little later, and I'm going to probe some more questions there will be in season scouting, but a couple of things I want to follow up on that uh, answer you just gave. First of all, how often are you looking for deer that, you know, survived the previous season? And if you are, how is that different? If it's a new to you, like this summer deer. So maybe talk about if you're looking for one that you know survived and then one that's new to you this year. What are you doing specifically on that one new to you this year to get more intel without overpressuring that deer during the summer? So like last year, you know, if, if I'm just thinking around home and in, for me, home is southern Michigan, probably, you know, four four different counties in southern Michigan and probably two to three different counties in northern Ohio. That's kind of my home radius where I spend a decent amount of time and then I travel from there. So I don't have a really good you know, finger on the pulse of like what deer survived. I do know of a couple. I'm sure there's other ones that have, but a lot of these areas I hunt are small. They're all accessible to anyone, whether it's public land or if you just go knock on someone's door and ask. You know, they'll tell you, yes, I don't hunt anything that's exclusive at all. So a lot of times these areas, they're good for short windows. You know, I might have permission on a 40 acres here. I might hunt this piece of public, but really the only good spot is in the far back corner, you know, or this river bottom that's only good during the rut. There's these, it seems like because I don't have like one great big property that can hold deer all year long, I find that there's little windows where the action is good or these bucks show up. So I do have probably a dozen different bucks that I knew of last year that should be shooters this year that I am trying to locate, that I will be paying attention to those areas and trying to figure out if they made it. Now, the majority of them, no doubt about it, got killed. But I'm hoping two, three, four of those bucks made it and you know those would be bucks that i should pursue this year hopefully so i will i'll be kind of keying in on those areas um you know if it was a deer that was around early season i'm really going to focus on that really trying to work that area with the glass or with the cameras or um you know walking some depending on like if the food sources have changed or whatever maybe i walk some field edges and look for a big track or something because a lot of times around, at least where I hunt, this broken up country that does have a lot of ag ground, sometimes these these road crop rotations can really change where these deer are. They're still probably in the neighborhood, but they might be a, a mile away 
you know, now on a different bean field, you know, or a different corn field, or maybe this woodlot that they were in the early season last year was dropping acorns and this year it's not. So, you know, those, that can, those things can kind of throw a wrench in it. It's not like they're, they're showing up in the same, you know, few acres every year uh, consistently like that. So, you know, I'll start to really zero in on those areas where I knew those bucks were at those specific times and, and, and kind of have that in the back of my mind, you know, throughout the season. Now, if I were to locate a new one, a new deer, because um, I do do a lot of searching in those weeks leading up to the season, like I get cameras out now. I really don't start glassing probably, you know, right, usually right around August 1st. That's kind of like, okay, I'm going to start driving around and, and covering some ground and see if I can get a glimpse of something. Um, and if I do pick up something, I will, I'll try to keep tabs on it. I might go in there and drop a camera, like on the perimeter somewhere where I can go in, like on a, a field edge scrape or something where I'm not going to booger that deer up. And just try to gather as much information as I can from my experience, just because I locate them in August, even September, even mid-September, does not mean that he's going to be there for the opener here in Michigan, which is October 1st. In fact, a lot of times it seems like they just, they relocate, but every once in a while they, they stick around or they relocate a half mile this way or that way. It's usually not super far. So in a lot of cases, you know, I can't, even if they disappear, I can relocate them, but getting access is, is the tricky part. So I don't get my hopes up with, um, you know, that August and September glassing, but I really, really ramp it up about two weeks prior to our opener. Um, and I do the same thing in Ohio. You know, once I start getting into that mid-September, third week of September, that's when I'm like really searching because now I'm getting in that window where you know, just maybe, just maybe they're going to be around for that opener and I might get a few sits. And how I, you know, the way I gather that information, I mean, it just varies. Every situation is different. Sometimes, like in northern Ohio, some of these woodlots are so small. I mean, I can glass them. You know, I can I can get out of the car, I can walk through a cornfield, and then I can see an edge of that woodlot where that's not, it can't be seen from the road. And I can glass and see if he's in there and if he's coming out or what deer are coming out. Another situation, I would, if I knew a big buck was in there and he was the only mature deer I saw, I mean, I might feel comfortable walking in an edge, you know, walking a field edge and just trying to cut a track and see if I can find a fresh track. Either of those would give me the confidence like, okay, he's here, this is what he's doing, and then I can form a game plan. And then obviously a trail camera in a key location or something might might give me some info too. So it kind of varies situation the situation but it seems like if I put in the effort those two and a half weeks leading up to the opener I mean as long as as far back as I can remember at least 10-12 years I've had a good shooter buck to chase to go after opening day and that's from the effort I put in you know during that window. One of the things that I learned personally from those GPS collar studies and I mean, I think you kind of know it intuitively if you've been deer hunting for a while, but the early season bucks, they occupy a, a relatively, you know, and it can vary deer to deer, but they occupy a relatively small home range early season. So if you're seeing one semi-regularly, he's he's usually real close around there on the opener. Yeah, and it can be, you know, it can be harder. Um, like I hunt a lot of river bottom ground, 
um, much more difficult to glass. You know, a lot of times they're not making it out to the field before dark. Um, I hunt a lot of swamps and marshes. You know, in those cases, it's a little more difficult. I'll, I'll glass, especially in Michigan, I'll see these bucks in the bead fields surrounding the marshes in the summer, like in August, in July, you know, maybe early August. And then guys just start catching on. There's a lot of hunters here. There's a lot of guys putting in some good work and those deer feel it and they feel the pressure and they feel the cars stopping and they feel the guys like getting out of the car and going up to the top of the hill and looking. And then all of a sudden you got pressured deer in mid August and they're already moving a little later, moving a little less and uh, not getting out to those spots till well after dark. So a lot of times um, you have to kind of anticipate that, that they're already kind of either moving later or even getting pushed back into into those swamps and marshes. There's a spot on some public in Michigan that for a handful of years, I used to get so excited because I would glass these fields around this big marsh and I would see, you know, I would see four or five good, you know, mature looking deer, three-year-old, four-year-old deer for Michigan, you know, about as good as you you could ask for on public ground. And I would get so excited and I thought I was the only one that knew about these deer. And I was like trying to be incognito, you know, glassing them. Well, by mid-August, everybody had seen them. And uh, they were not coming out to the fields anymore. Well, I started pushing back further and further, like in my October hunts. And I got way back into the marsh, like way back into these these um, really deep points that kind of went out into the marsh and even these isolated islands. And I started finding some of these bucks that I was glassing in the summer. I mean, I'm talking a mile back. And uh, that's, that's how I started kind of keying in on, on those. I anticipated, I started to anticipate that that pressure would push them back there. And then I started kind of hunting my way back. I would start, you know, start at kind of like the, the likely bedding spots that were a little bit closer to the food source, but still a ways back, like maybe some some points or maybe some islands that weren't as far back and I would just kind of stage hunt my way back. And, uh, that's when I really kind of learned how these deer reacted to the pressure. And then I was able to get on, on some and even kill some back there in October. So that was a long time ago, but you know, those, those hunts, you know, I can still pull from those hunts. I can still go back to those locations and, uh, you know, still have good sits. In fact, last year, uh, tethered had, uh, they did a, a thing where they sent these young guys on a bus, like all over the, the U S deer hunting. And one of their stops was Michigan. And they came to an area that was like my home turf. And, um, I gave, uh, one of the kids, uh, a tip, you know, to go back into that marsh. And I was like, you gotta be, you gotta be really quiet. You gotta move slow, you know? And he, he went back in there and he, you know, he said he busted a big deer off, off one of those islands. So, you know, it's to, to this day, they're still, they're still being used, still producing, but, um, you know, every, I hunt all kinds of different stuff. So it's, it's really hard because I, I don't feel like I have like a dialed in system. A lot of it, like I said, it's kind of ever flowing and kind of go with my gut, but it does kind of revolve around as much as I can gathering information and then making like really good, uh, like a detailed strike or a really specific sit for a specific reason, you know, but as you get into the rut a little more, it might be, you know, that's obviously 
you know, a lot of times it just, it requires time in the tree, you know, in a good spot. So maybe a little less efficient during the rut, you know, for me personally, you know, but then it's, it's just about putting that time in, the, in those good spots and, and getting a crack at one. Well, the going with your gut, that's a good segue. You talked about how your previous experiences inform your game plan a lot of times, but what advice would you give to someone who is newer, who doesn't have a lot of experience to fall back on? If you can look back on those lessons you were learning maybe 20 years ago, what do you do when you don't have that built up knowledge base yet? How do you get there? Yeah, that's a really good question. I always tell guys to follow their gut. Even if you're a new hunter, I feel like new hunters and and guys that maybe have like, you know, a year to five years, even 10 years of experience, they can like overthink themselves to death. You know, they can go back and forth and waffle this and that and like, you know, just overthink everything and make themselves crazy. But my advice or my opinion is tend to play more on the aggressive side, hunt more on the aggressive side and always follow your gut. If you get a gut feeling, go with it. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're right. It doesn't matter if you're wrong, because what's going to happen is like, you're going to follow your gut and it's, it's either going to work out good for you or it's going to work out not so good for you. And if it doesn't work out good for you, that's information. You know, that's an experience that you can now build from. That's an experience that now that gut feeling, those instincts might just change a little bit. Maybe I pushed in too far. I want, I feel like I need to go in further. I'm not seeing the sign. I feel like I need to go in further. Well, there's a big rub right there. Oh man, I, I, I feel like I need to go in further. And then all of a sudden you bump the deer, right? So you pushed in a little too far. Maybe next time you follow your gut, you're going to pull from that. And it might tell you to like, Hey, you know, I'm getting in here. The stem count's getting a little heavier. Signs picking up. You know, what's, what's here? Okay. I got a scrape over here. I got a nice funnel. Let me look at the map. There's a little island, you know, a hundred yards ahead out in this marsh. You know, I bet he's bedded there, you know, so I'm going to set up here. I'm in, I'm in undetected. He has no idea I'm here. I'm going to set up here, find a good spot. So you're kind of playing off those past experiences, but you have to kind of be more on the aggressive side because you kind of have to push in and make those mistakes. And if you're not, if you're a very timid hunter, and if you kind of read a lot of what a lot of the experts have written over the years, especially 10, 20, 30 years ago, you know, it's like, don't ever spook deer and don't leave any scent and don't do this because you'll never see them again. Well, that does work, but it works if you can hunt a lot. And if you can kind of play more of a persistent patient game and then finally get a crack at one. But if you really want to tap into those instincts, you, you kind of have to push the envelope. You have to push in and you have to make mistakes and you have to develop those instincts. You have to make those mistakes, learn from them, kind of eliminate those mistakes or, or, or fix them and let those instincts kind of take over. I also think over time that that really kind of develops and can become a really strong asset, you know? So I always trust my instincts and they, you know what, every year they just keep getting more and more, um, more and more right. You know, I'm, I'm getting in on deer following my gut a lot of times. And when I'm, I'm at a crossroads and I'm not sure what to do, I just go with my gut. Sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's wrong, but more times than not, as I get older, as I get more experienced, I'm subconsciously pulling from, past experiences and I've had so many that it's just it's becoming right more often but that started happening 10 years in so guys can can start trusting their gut and just know it's not always going to be right 
And if you're making mistakes, if you're bumping deer, if you're in there mixing it up and you're getting encounters with, with good deer, whether you're spooking them or you're getting in bow range or you're missing them or they're smelling you, you're in the ball game. That's one thing about me is like, I am in the ball game with good deer all the time. Yes, I might be busting them. Yes, I might get an opportunity and I might blow it or I might come to full draw and not get that chance or, you know, he might get downwind of me and smell me. But I'm getting, I'm in the ball game. I'm getting encounters with good deer all the time. And I think it's because it's a combination of my aggressive approach while following my gut that I'm able to pull from a lot of past experiences, you know, and, and really, really tap into those instincts. So I think too, if you get too set into like a, a style, like this is what I do. I hunt beds and this is the bed and, you know, I'm going to find the, the tree that's close to the bed or scrape that's close to the bed. And, and this is what I do. And this is my approach. That's great. You know, there's, there's guys that do that. And I, and I do that. I mean, I do that sometimes, but sometimes like throwing yourself into a new situation, a new area, a new state, a new type of terrain without a set plan and just going in there and just kind of letting your instincts take over. That's when you can really tap into what you have inside and pull from those experiences. You know, you can be real biased hunting, you know, the home farm over and over and you can get real comfortable or hunting, you know, a handful of properties over and over and you learn them and you know where the deer are and you have the strategy and yeah, you can put some big bucks on the wall doing that. But I've always wanted to like, I've always wanted to become a better bow hunter. I've always wanted to improve. I've never, ever just, it's never, ever been about just filling up a wall for me. Cause if it was, I would hunt completely different than what I do. I would focus on drawing an Iowa tag. I would hunt Illinois every year. I would hunt Kansas every other year and, you know, maybe go to Nebraska or something. And I would just put all my time, money, and resources into that, finding a lease, and I would stack giants. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that I could do that. But that doesn't really excite me. I mean, I love big deer, but what excite me, excites me is new areas, new challenges, and becoming a better hunter. And for me personally, it's translated into like other species. Like I think the best bow hunters are the hunters that hunt multiple species. And, you know, specifically some of the Western guys, I think they are the best bow hunters, you know, hunting antelope, hunting elk, mule deer, bear, axis deer, you know, you name it. Like all of these animals are so unique and they're so challenging in their own way and require different skills for each one and some of them are way more difficult to kill than a whitetail but whitetail requires a different set of skill you know that maybe some of those guys don't have so I've kind of chose that route to kind of challenge myself across the board with a lot of difficult hunts and you know difficult bow hunts because I feel like it makes me a better bow hunter and I really like I've, I've really fallen in love with chasing some of these new species because I'm kind of in that learning phase and it's in, I'm in that phase where I'm building those experiences and really trying to fall back on my gut instincts. And, you know, I'm finding that, yeah, it's, I'm not awesome at it. I'm not the best at it. I'm not as good as I am at whitetail, but I'm pretty darn good at it. I've learned to kill and I've learned 
to get in on animals, I've learned to create opportunities for myself and I'm just learning the nuances of each of these species. But my advice, kind of back to the original question for a new guy, is be more on the aggressive side than on the passive side. If you're always on the outside looking in, you're never getting the encounters. You're never getting the experience that you need to really develop. You can develop on the fast track if you're a quick learner, if you eliminate mistakes, and you are on the aggressive side, and then you learn to follow your gut. That's the fast track to becoming a more deadly bow hunter because you're going to be pushing the envelope. You're going to force these opportunities, and you're going to screw up time and time again, and you're going to make all these errors, and you're going to want to kill yourself some days. But... <laughs> you're going to be in the game much more often than the guy that sits at the field edge that doesn't want to enter his bedding area or his sanctuary that never wants to bump any deer. You know, that guy, he might get two or three encounters, you know, a season on a good deer, maybe, you know, in, in a pressured state like Michigan, he might get none. Yeah. You know, he might not get any, but if you hunt more on the aggressive side and I'm not saying reckless, more aggressive push in but be a predator sneak in be attentive sneak in look around like pay attention to your surroundings read the sign but get into where these deer live and be more aggressive and yeah you know i remember when dan said if you're not bumping deer you're not in the game and it's true you know you've got to be in there and that's the fast track to learning quicker making the mistakes learning more quickly developing these instincts and becoming a better bow hunter. I think a lot of guys never really tap into that. And it's because they, they're they're way too passive and they're way too cautious. There's been times, several times in the last handful of years where I just can't get anything going. I can't find a shooter buck. I can't. You know, all these plans that I had where this buck was supposed to show up here during this time. He didn't show up. I don't have no idea where he is. He got hit by a car or killed or just somewhere else. I don't know. I'm glassing. I can't, I can't even glass up a, a three-year-old deer. You know, I start popping cameras out everywhere. I can't even get a three-year-old deer on camera. It's like I've had multiple years like this in the last five years here in Michigan. And I just turn it up and I start really covering ground in the boots and uh, try to bump something up. To me, yeah, it's not ideal to bump a big mature deer out of a bedding area. But when I don't have anything else going on, like that's as good as a trail cam picture to me. You know, and now I bumped him or I got into this area, you know, I'm, I'm kind of burning through this area, right through the bedding area. And I start finding all this sign, like now I'm in the game with something. And if I bump him, maybe I'm in the game with him. You know, maybe he comes back that night, the next morning, maybe he comes back a week later, or maybe I bumped him out for the season. But now, boom, there's another piece of information, another deer that I wouldn't have had if I wasn't aggressive and I can build on it. Either way, it benefited me. It might benefit me tomorrow when I kill him coming back. It might benefit me two years from now when another buck moves in and lives there. So I'm not afraid to go out and search. I kind of got that from talking to some other guys that probably had some strengths that were more weaknesses of mine when years got tough. You know, I talk with uh, Justin Wright is a, a guy you've had on and he's one of my close buddies and we talk all the time. And, you know, that's what he does. And and that's kind of what I started doing, you know, four or five years ago, you know, just taking a big loop through an area and trying to kick deer up, maybe not try to kick deer up, but 
kind of work through area where you know deer should be, where you think deer should be, where you think mature bucks should be, because we all know the types of spots that mature bucks like to bed and go in there and see what you find. You know, maybe you kick one up, maybe you find the sign. It's like, dude, I can set up right now, you know? So I, I always go into it. It's not like I'm going through like a bull in a China shop, but I'm going in kind of ready to hunt. I have my bow, I have my mobile set up and I'm slipping through and I'm looking for sign. I'm getting in there thick. And yeah, I bump deer. I bump deer all the time. I was talking to another guy a few months ago on a podcast. And I was like, I probably educate more deer than any other hunter I know. I know I do, but that's because I'm in there constantly, you know, I'm mixing it up with them and I'm in there forcing these encounters because I want to gather the information. And if I do that enough, I either get the information I need for a good high quality sit or I bump one that leads to a kill the next day, a week from now or down the road, or it's a number of things. But by being in there and having that aggressive approach and kind of following my gut and I'm able to pull back from almost 30 years of experience now, it's like I've developed a good feel for it. And even when I bump something or I find something, it's a lot of times I can capitalize on, on it then or it turns into something good down the road. Man, so many things that you said there resonated with me. And I just want to summarize a few of those, mostly because I think they're so important. First, you mentioned uh, hunting more for adventure. And I think it's important to know why you hunt and to be honest with yourself. Like you said, your approach to hunting might look totally different if your only end goal was to put bucks in a record book, right? You, you might just lease premium ground and hunt the same rotation of stands every year. And that's fine, right? That's some people's what they like to do. I'm not making a judgment there. I'm just saying it's important to know why you want to hunt and to kind of craft your season and your approach around that. Second, trusting your gut. Uh, if a guy is paying attention, like you said, I think that's a it's a self-correcting mechanism. You're going to get that feedback every time you trust your gut. Either it was right or it was wrong. And, and over time, it's kind of a iterative process. It's just going to correct itself and I say this all the time. It's one of my favorite sayings. There's no replacement for experience. The more experience you get every season, the faster that thing's going to correct itself. So totally agree there. And then something you touched on, which this is newer to me, I'd say in like the last five, maybe six years, aggression. And you mentioned Justin. I want to talk about Justin a little bit more here in a minute. But I think every time you sit back and you're passive, you have to wonder. You have to wonder every time, was that deer there? Did it skirt me? Did it go somewhere else? Was it even there? And I think so many guys are, are scared of bumping a deer, especially in season. But I'm a lot like Justin, and, and like I said, this is kind of newer to me the last couple of years. If I'm in a new area, like I had to relearn when I came to Montana, I didn't have any spots. If I'm in a new state or like this year I'm going to North Dakota mule deer for the first time, I pound a ton of ground and I scout and I kind of still hunt, but I just cover a ton of ground until I start running into deer because especially out west, it seems like the deer are pocketed more. So you can waste a lot of time, a lot of time where there's no deer, or you can risk bumping a few and then get on the deer right away. So I think that's, that's huge. And last thing he said, or one of the last things he said, talking about hunting new species, new States. Um, I think that's super important for developing your overall bow hunting skills. And, and I laugh and I tell people this all the time. If you ever think you got something in bow hunting figured out, buy a archery antelope tag and do a spot and stock hunt and, and that'll put you back to square one pretty quick. 
Exactly. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Like some guys don't care about becoming a better hunter. They want to manage their piece of ground and they want to kill 180 inch bucks every year out of the same box blinds and they just get enjoyment out of working the land. And, and I, I see guys do that and I, and I get it. Who doesn't want a little slice of heaven where they can hunt giant deer? But that doesn't, I'm not super passionate about that. Like I'd like to hunt that situation a little bit, but I'm really passionate about becoming a, a, the best bow hunter I can be and being effective across multiple states, multiple terrains. Like you throw me anywhere and I want to feel like I can get it done and feel the confidence to get it done. And that's always been my goal and my approach. And yeah, I've killed a lot of nice deer, but I haven't killed some of the caliber of deer like some of those guys. But like, like you just said, you you take some of those guys, you know, and I'm I'm sure they think some of them pretty highly of themselves. And you throw them out west and say, hey, go try to kill an antelope with your bow or go try to kill a, hunt, a high country mule deer. I mean, they're going to fail miserably because it's a, it's a, it's a whole different skill set of bow hunting. And that's, I am in love with bow hunting and becoming the best bow hunter that I can be. And there are far better bow hunters out there than me. And I've been able to help a lot of guys. And there's guys that have helped me, especially on the Western front. And I follow a lot of those, those guys and talk to them because they have a different set of skills than what I had coming into it. And, you know, going out West and, and, hunting antelope. I've killed three antelope with a bow and I've killed six or seven mule deer with a bow. Those skills required for those critters in those situations have helped me even more so on the whitetail front because it's a whole different skill set, but I've been able to incorporate some of those back into whitetail hunting. So I hunt a lot more from the ground now with whitetail. I'm a lot more mobile and sometimes maybe in a little, even a little too mobile, but I've enjoyed it. I've, I've kind of gotten into a whole different strategy sometimes, much more confident still hunting with the bow. You know, I call it like slip hunting, or I think Jerry Scheffler calls it snooking, sneaking and looking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, term. I mean, yeah, I love that. Like my friends always, we are, let's go snooking, you know, but that's, you know, I do that all the time now and I feel like I'm scouting. I'm kind of slipping through the woods and I'm, I'm looking and, yeah, ideally I'm trying to get eyes on a big buck and that doesn't always happen, but sometimes I get eyes on deer that leads me to a big buck. And sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes I, I'm slipping around and I find the hot sign and I haven't bumped anything. It's like, Oh my gosh, like this is red hot. Like I need to hunt this right now. Like that scenario happens all the time. You know, or sometimes I'm slipping around and I, and I bump a few deer and then you know, that leads to other deer and all of a sudden I'm in a, a really good spot. So that more kind of Western approach of like covering ground and uh, looking for those opportunities or, or creating those opportunities, I've kind of incorporated that thumb into whitetail. And again, it's just, it's just helped me. It's helped create some more opportunities where before I probably would have been in a tree or in an observation stand or, or something like that, more stationary. And I still do all that stuff, but when I feel like being on the ground is more advantageous because I can slip around, maybe the conditions are good, maybe the terrain sets up well for it. I have all the confidence in the world to do that now because I've proven to myself I can sneak up on antelope with a bow. 
get an arrow in them, you know, which is, as you know, one of the hardest things to do. Yeah. It's so. a, it's an exercise in frustration. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've never heard a mechanic complain that they have too many tools in the toolbox. And I think when it comes to bow hunting, the only way you put that tool in the toolbox is to get out there and practice it. Like there's, there's really no shortcuts. So the more you practice those skills, especially like you said, things that you're uncomfortable with, the sooner that weakness becomes a strength. And, and then you got that tool in the toolbox for the, the rest of your hunting journey. Absolutely. Yep. Well, Andy, here's something I hear a lot of big buck killers say, and I feel like this thing isn't fleshed out too well. I hear him say something like, quote, I moved in when the conditions were right. And while I know that can be highly situational and, and pretty dependent on your area, could you think back and maybe give me some specific examples from previous hunts and elaborate on uh, you moved in when the conditions were right? What those conditions look like and, and what cued you in, hey, it's time to make a move on this deer in this area? Yeah, that's a really good question because that can, that you could use that term with a lot of things. You know, I've moved in when the conditions were right. I think back to, and, and, and you wouldn't think that this would be good conditions to move in on a, uh, a certain buck or a certain area, but this big, uh, mature Michigan nine point from, uh, it's probably been eight, nine years now, but I wanted to get back in this stand and it was back in the timber more. Um, and it was pretty, uh, there was lots of like uh, high stem count, you know, it was kind of thicker type wood. There was a lot of, uh, that ash tree that kind of had fallen. So a lot of sunlight was getting in. So it was real thick back in the timber more. Um, much thicker than like on the on the woods edge, kind of around the perimeter. But I never felt confident that I could get back into. It was a specific tree. I never felt confident that I could get in there without without alerting everything, you know, in the area because I'd have to walk through so much timber and crunchy leaves and, and sticks and and just be noisy. So it was mid October. I can't remember the exact date, but I got like a windy and rainy day like blustery wind, blustery rain. And I was like, dude, this is perfect. I'm going to sneak back into that. You know, I'll be able to just move like a snail and get back into that timber and finally get to hunt this spot. And there were a couple different bucks that were kind of living back there that me and my buddy knew about. Um, one of the, which is, is the one I ended up shooting, but I snuck in there with those conditions and I got in completely undetected because the noise and because the, the leaves and everything were wet, I could move completely silent. So I just moved really slow, kind of moved with the wind gusts, finally got into that spot. And when I climbed up in that tree and finally started seeing a few deer move, I mean, I was within 40 yards of deer that were bedded. So those conditions allowed me to get into an area that I otherwise would never have gotten into undetected. They would have, they would have heard me coming you know, a twig break or a leaf crunch or something probably, you know, well before I even got close to that tree. So that's one that sticks out to me. Another one is, I think probably the traditional, um, when, when guys say that they're probably referring to this situation, which, you know, I've said it a lot too about, about certain hunts, but moving into, kind of a traditional rut spot. Maybe it's a, the downwind side of a doe bedding, or maybe it's a, a funnel connecting you know, a couple bedding areas or an area where a lot of uh, points kind of dump down together, just something that pinches movement down 
where buck movement tends to gravitate when they're really cruising or on the on the search for does and waiting for those perfect conditions. So you're waiting for that perfect time of year, right? Which it might be could be late October, more likely probably more that first week of November, kind of heading into that second week or something. And then you're waiting for you're waiting for that time frame. You're waiting for the perfect wind to get in that situ, you know, to get into that spot, which, you know, obviously you prefer to have it blow into some sort of like dead zone or an area where you don't expect deer to be coming and going. And then if you can time that with some cold weather, like, you know, maybe, maybe a drop in temperatures or maybe just below average temperatures or whatever, when it accompanies that time of year, I used to be more attentive to the moon. I do think it has a, a bit of an effect. But I don't really pay attention to it much anymore. But like that, there's a situation right there where there's multiple things kind of lining up together, certain time of year, certain weather temperature, you know, certain wind direction. And if you've had the discipline to stay out of those areas until that timing is right, until those conditions are right, you're going in with a very high chance of success. So a lot of these situations where you, you wait till the conditions are right, you have to exercise some discipline. And waiting, waiting for those conditions, waiting for those rainy or windy conditions to get into those more sensitive areas where you otherwise wouldn't have been able to get in. Or, you know, it could be complete other end of the spectrum. You got a, a water hole and, uh, you know, it's hot out and you're waiting for some really hot weather or, or drought type conditions or the perfect wind to sneak into something like that. You know, it's, it's more being disciplined to move in when everything is right and in your favor so you can get that first effective sit you know that very first time in we all know that's your best chance you know in any in any situation that's probably your best chance because no deer have detected you yet anytime you sit a spot over and over and over it's degrading some more than others you know sometimes you can find a, a really good situation where maybe you have water access or something and you literally just climb out of the water and up into a tree but even then a doe picks you off because you're moving you know and she blows you know or something you know it's, it's usually something happens where every sit after that it's degraded a little bit so that would be you know when guys say that those terms waiting for the right conditions i mean those are the things that come to mind no those are great examples and i, I think they tie back into kind of what i wanted the theme of this podcast to be you got to think critically about that and something that we touched on quite a bit here, your accumulated experience. You're thinking about when is the optimal time to be in there, or you know that from previous experience. And then something else you, you mentioned there, and I don't think this is talked about all too often, but great point is discipline. And man, <laughs> that was a tough one for me early on. And, and now it's much easier to remember a lot of these spots are only great spots during a certain window. And, and if you get in before that window, that's an undisciplined move that's really messing up your chances of success in those areas yeah you know there's several times throughout the season where i'm waiting for the conditions to be perfect there are those situations for me but there's on the whole opposite side of that there's times where the conditions aren't perfect and i'm still going out there trying to make something happen like i there's a lot of times i go on these these out-of-state hunts and the conditions are not perfect for instance like last year i went to uh i went on a western hunt it was a mule deer hunt and i went out there and the conditions were the worst i've ever been in in my life i mean they were it was 60 mile an hour winds 
I've never seen anything like it. I had a hard time walking without getting blown off my feet or off balance. And it was like that day after day after day. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to, I mean, even if I did see something, nothing was moving. But even if I did see something, like, how am I going to shoot my bow? Like, I won't be able to shoot my, even hold my bow steady. Even if I get an arrow off, it's going to be blowing my arrow sideways. I just felt like the chances of this, this hunt being successful were about as close to zero as you could get. But then me and my buddy were just like, you know what? Like, we're not seeing the deer. The deer are here. We got to go lower. We got to go lower. So we started going into like more bad land country. And we're looking, you know, we're kind of looking on, you know, on the leeward side of these hills and then these little cracks and crevices. And it's like, no, we got to, we got to look lower, like the lowest spot that they can get where we can't see unless you're looking straight down. And we started kind of peeking around and looking down in these badlands, in these cracks. It got to the point where we were started finding deer, but you couldn't see them until you were within like feet. You know, yes, you might be over them, but like you were within feet of them looking down and they were tucked in these, the lowest possible elevation, uh, hidden in these little tiny cracks out of the wind. And it was just, it was incredible. I mean, it was so cool once we started figuring that out. So then it was like, okay, we're starting to find deer and this is the strategy. We have to like look over these cracks, like there's going to be a big buck every time we peek over and you know we might look over 100 of them and 99 of them there's nothing there and then there's that one and there's a deer there and if you're not careful because when you're looking over you're skylining yourself boom they see you immediately you know so it's like we started instead of like i think i described it as instead of like spot and stalk we were stalking to spot you know essentially (laughs) reversing it you know, so we were stalking to these little spots where we could just peek over and we're looking for an ear, an antler tip, like anything we can see before we completely skyline ourselves. And uh, we came to this new area and we got up on this big vantage and we're looking down over all this badland country and we're kind of working this edge this, or this rim. And we get to this point where we can see a lot of really good country. And there's this little, little tiny um, point of view where I could see down into these badland, uh, these like little uh, like drainages and these little washes. And there was like this little narrow point of view that I had that I could see right to the bottom. And all I could see, I, I'm like glass and I'm really picking apart and I'm looking as low as I can. And I just see this left side of an antler. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's a nice buck right there. And like just, I couldn't have been standing anywhere else than where I was to be able to see like through all this different ele- uh, elevation. I could just see through these, these multiple cracks and I just see a left side of an antler way down at the bottom. And um, I showed my buddy and he's like, oh man, yeah, that's a pretty good one. And we were happy with it considering how the hunt was going. I mean, it wasn't a giant, but he was a good solid deer. And, uh, you know, the stalk was on. And now... I had found one. Then I had the obviously the wind, the high, very high winds in my favor to get down there. So the stalk was not super challenging. Um, I just had to stay out of his view for the most part. And then I got to, you know, I knew I had to get close. I didn't, I didn't even want to take a twenty yard shot. Like there's, there's just no way. You know, the wind was blowing that 
that hard. So I ended up getting right about 10 yards from him. Um, and I was able to draw back and put a good shot on him. But that's awesome. That, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a, a good example of when, you know, sometimes you just got to go with the cards that you're dealt and try to make something happen, even though the conditions aren't ideal. Cause a lot of times we don't have that flexibility to just sit and wait and wait for conditions to be perfect. I mean, I'm a perfect example of that. Like I have days, sometimes I have a little flexibility, but you know, a lot of times there's, these are the days I have to hunt and I got to make something happen or I got to try to gather some information or something that's going to benefit me either now or, you know, a few days from now or a week from now or, or later on. Yeah. It highlights the importance of uh, a couple of things. One being persistent and two being resourceful, right? Like it'd be easy to get there. And uh, I mean, having a positive attitude too, be easy to get there, like you said, and be down in the dumps or give up on the hunt because the conditions are so bad, but you're already there. It's like, make the best of it. Yeah. We had some guys that were with us that pulled out. They decided to leave because the wind was just too, was too much. And you know, they were going to come back at a different time. So, you know, it just goes to show like you can get the, the poorest conditions, but it might, you can turn it into a positive. And with that one, it's like, okay, those terrible conditions, those super almost dangerous type wind conditions pushed the deer down to very specific locations and they were hard to find and they were hard to see. And, you know, there had been major droughts all through that area the last few years and the deer numbers were way down. So it's not like we were finding a lot of deer doing this, but we found out what the pattern was. And all we needed to do was find the right one. And now the, now the wind was an asset to us because now the stalk, which often is one of the trickiest parts, that was the easiest part. And because the wind was so strong, one of the things I, I had to do or I wanted to do was get in super tight. And it allowed me to do that because the wind was whipping so, so hard. I probably could have went up and just touched that deer on the back of the head. I mean, that's how, that's how hard it was blowing. But I knew I had to get close to get a good, clean shot in there. But yeah, I mean, it just, you know, kind of using those poor conditions and turn it into a positive, save that hunt. And that story is a great transition to something else I wanted to talk about. But before we move on, I want to take a minute to mention HuntingBeastGear.com. Co-founded by the big buck serial killer himself, Dan Infault, Hunting Beast Gear features state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered, field-tested, and refined to perfection by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet www.huntingbeastgear.com delivers cutting-edge products including beast gear climbing sticks with weight reduction holes designed to deliver incredible durability in a lightweight stick beast gear climbing sticks also feature non-staggered inline stacking and double steps all in a 2.2 pound package including the fastening strap huntingbeastgear.com has also released the game-changing beast gear hang-on tree stand designed to be the ultimate hang-on tree stand solution with over four years of prototyping testing and refinement the Beast Gear stand features a 16-inch wide by 29-inch long platform. The stand comes in at an incredible 6.8 pounds, and it does all that without compromising strength or durability. The Beast Gear stand is finished with a long-lasting anodized coating and features grade 8 hardware, high-quality Delrin washers, beast buttons, and adjustment knobs. For more details and to place your order today, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com. Now, back to the podcast. We touched on early in the podcast here, in in season scouting and and it sounds like you listened to some of these episodes but i did two episodes with our our mutual acquaintance justin wright who personally i consider him to be an expert on in season scouting so 
this is kind of a, a three-part question. If we want to circle back to any of these parts, let me know. But first one, and, and we kind of covered this already, but when are you employing in-season scouting? Sounds like pretty much all the time. Two, more specifically, this is the two and three are, are what I'm more interested in. When you're doing in-season scouting, what are you looking for? And then three, how do you balance that in-season scouting in applying too much pressure? Yeah, those are good questions. Yeah, so number one, yeah, I'm, I'm in-season scouting all the time. Kind of like as I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm trying to gather information to the point where I, where I, I have enough that I feel like I can go in and kill something. And if I don't have that, I just keep trying to get it. So I need to see something, you know, I need to get eyes on a buck. I need a picture. I need some hot sign. I need to bump into something, something along those lines, maybe a good sign coming out of a, a, a bedding area, a big track, some big rubs. Like, yeah, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably go in there, you know, and sit. If I know a big mature deer, you know, what, what, the sign left by a big mature deer, and maybe I see that deer and he's, he's not something I want to arrow or something. And, and that's totally fine. But I'm always looking for enough information where I feel like 50 to 60% or higher, I can go in and have an encounter with that deer. And if I don't have it, if I don't have like that level of confidence, maybe even a little higher than that, if I don't have that, then I try to gather more information to get that or I go start searching somewhere else. And then when I do get it, that's when I dive in. And the only caveat to that, I would say, is like during the rut, you know, then then I'm probably going to be just putting in time where I know there's either a shooter or two or, you know, a couple of deer that I know I'm interested in. I know they're in this area during the rut. Then it's, for me, it's about putting in time in high percentage locations and being there as much as possible. But even then, I'm, I'm usually trying to, if it's, if it's around home, I'm trying to put myself in a position for a specific deer or, you know, a certain caliber of deer that I know are in that area, you know, and then out of state, it's a little different, but, uh, number two was remind me again. What do you, what sign are you looking for? And then uh, how are you balancing the pressure? Yeah. So, um, number two, I kind of just answered that, um, in season scouting for me, it consists of kind of glassing, you know, I, you know, I don't do a lot of glassing like in season, but I'm like, I'm always glassing. I'm always looking. I always have my binoculars checking some trail cameras in certain locations. I'll, I'll do that. I don't run a ton of cameras, but I, I keep moving them around. You know, if I have five or six or eight out, like I'll move them around a little bit, but I'm not one of those guys that puts out 60 of them, you know, and I just start checking cameras. I don't do that. And I don't, I don't really care to do that. Like I like using them as a part of my process, but I don't want it to be live and die by the camera. Like I, I don't want that. I don't like the way that feels because there's, there's been a couple of years where I felt like I was like, I almost felt like, gosh, I can't get anything going. I just need more cameras out. And I was just checking cameras and I was talking to Justin about it. I was like, Dude, this sucks. Like, this isn't, <laughs> you know, I'm not even good at Like I'm not even doing what I'm best at. And I just completely abandoned that and started doing what I felt like I was best at, which was getting on the ground and getting in there and mixing things up and finding something. And that, that's when I, you know, ended up getting my opportunity. So getting eyes on a deer, a picture of a deer, or it could be just the sign. It really depends. You know, if it's, if it's earlier in the season, mid-October, you know, I'm really kind of looking around those likely 
you know, bedding area that we, that we all know bucks like to, you know, especially mature bucks like to bed in. If it's a marsh, you know, I'm kind of working that marsh edge, you know, where the marsh meets the timber and I'm, I'm kind of working down that transition line and I'm looking for sign coming in and out. Um, just anything, a big track, some rubs, a good scrape with a, a big print in it. Some of those antler ticks, you know, where a lot of times, you know, Justin and I have both seen this where I think it happens a lot where you get deer where you don't have like a whole lot of competition and there'll be a mature buck in an area and he's not shredding it up because there's not a whole lot of competition. He doesn't really need to do that, but you'll find like these, these little antler ticks, these little, just little ticks from the tips of his antlers, like almost like little holes in the trees. And, um, we've both found those quite a bit and it's, you know, it seems to always lead to like a good mature deer, but I think it happens more in areas where you don't have as much uh, buck competition. So they're not really in there thrashing it up, but normally around that time of year, early mid October, maybe even to that late October, I'm kind of just working around those, those bedding areas, you know, around things where or areas where I think a mature buck should be. Maybe I'm going off something where I knew or one was last year and I'm kind of working that area to see if I think he's back, if there's sign that indicates he's back, maybe checking a camera if I have one in there to see if he's back, or maybe I'm just going to a completely new area. Like I did with my, uh, my Michigan uh, public land buck a couple of years ago, I went to a completely new area. It was mid October. It was October 19th and, um, didn't have anything going, couldn't get anything going, had no bucks to go after and went to a completely a completely new spot I snuck in and I found this this little opening and there were some white oak trees there and I started like glassing up in the tree and I saw that they there were some a few acorns left and I started looking on the ground there's some brows I found some poop and then all of a sudden I found I started finding all these like really torn up scrapes like active scrapes probably a half dozen or more all under these oaks and then in a few of them there was like some wet spot and there was some good, uh, good size tracks. What I thought was like a three, maybe a four year old buck. And I was like, wow, you know, this spot is red hot, you know, and normally just given the, the layout of that situation, there was good perimeter cover around. Um, I felt perfectly fine sitting there. It seemed like a spot that could be visited during daylight, but the way the wind was blowing. And when I looked up on my map on my phone, I was like, Hmm. You know, I bet you there was a, like a, this, I don't know, maybe a five or six acre kind of thicket just next to that, like just adjacent to it. And it, to me, that looked like the only good bedding cover around. Um, the rest of it was just timber and kind of wide open. Like there was a, a river bottom through there, but it was kind of like flood ground. So it was like, you know, you could see through it, it kind of open. Yeah. Not where you find a, a buck that size in Michigan. Right. Exactly when I was looking at that map, that thicket made all the sense in the world. Cause it was really thick, dense cover, uh, kind of overlooked, but my wind was blowing right in that direction. If I were to try to set up in there, it was kind of blowing in that direction. And I thought if a buck did come out and had that direction towards me, he would win me. So I backed out away from the sign. I did a big loop and came in on the opposite side of that thicket. And I snuck into the thicket. I got right to the edge and I started th- sneaking in. And I, I bump a doe, like immediately. I take that back. I find a spot. I get in probably 20, I don't know, maybe 20, 40 yards into that thicket. 
I find a nice tree. I start climbing up in my saddle and it looks good. I get up high enough where I can kind of see into a decent area. I'm up above the vegetation a little bit. I have some shooting holes. And then as I was pulling my bow up, I like hit a branch or something. I didn't think any of it, but I was trying to be real quiet because I'm like, I'm in what I anticipate is this buck's bedroom. I got the wind in my face and a doe uh, must have heard me hit that branch. And as I'm pulling my bow up, I get it. And then I'm, you know, kind of getting it all hung up and everything. And I look and there's a doe walking like right at me coming to check out what that noise was. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So I'm like, I'm on the opposite side of the tree. I'm in a, a saddle. So I'm on the opposite side of the tree of her and I'm just like hiding behind this tree. And I'm like, oh my gosh, please don't, you know, please don't boss out because <laughs> this is a very small thicket. Like if she blows, if she takes off, like whatever's in that thicket's going to hear. And, uh, she loses interest. She comes, she checks it out, doesn't see anything. She goes right back about 80 yards away and lays down. It was awesome. So then I'm all, you know, I'm ready to go. And now I'm on the opposite side of the thicket, on the opposite side of where that sign was. So I felt if the buck was in there, he really had no reason to come my way. Okay. Like he, like I just felt like, you know, that there was a, Crop fields more that opposite direction where that sign was. That's where all the sign was. I felt like just naturally he was probably going to go that way. And in that thicket, when I got up in that tree, there was like this little island of trees. I mean, like eighth of an acre, like a little, just tiny, the size of like a, you know, a very small house, like a thousand square foot house, little island of trees. And I was like, I bet he's better right in there if he's in here. Cause it just made sense the way it was kind of laid out. Because I thought his natural movement was going to be away from me, I felt like I needed to try something that was maybe a little unconventional. So what I did was, I was like, okay, I'm going to wait until prime time. If I don't see him, I'm going to call. And the reason I felt somewhat confident calling is because I had entered this, this deer's bedding area. I got in undetected. I did something that a human technically shouldn't been able to do right like this buck feels secure it's like a good buck he's bedded in this secure spot he's supposed to be able to t- detect if he hears a human rustling through the weeds and, and the branches and stuff sure and then he can escape but because i snuck in there i got in there undetected i felt like i got a decent chance of getting this buck to ex- um, kind of explore the sound so what I did was I grabbed, uh, I waited until about 30 minutes of daylight left, prime time, when other deer naturally would be moving anyway. I didn't want to do it two hours before dark because that's not very realistic, you know, like a deer grunting and, you know, rattling or, or whatever. So I waited till prime time. Things started getting a little dark, a little calm. And I pulled out my grunt call and I tried to turn my head and I tried to cast it away from the deer. So a lot of times, I'm not a big caller, but sometimes when I call, I'll try to make it sound like it's coming from a different direction. So I wanted to sound like I was possibly further than where I was because the way the wind was blowing, usually, you know, mature deer especially will kind of come in downwind. They'll try to circle downwind of the noise. So I was trying to make, I was trying to call out further away from where I thought this deer was bedded in hopes that when he did make a circle, it was within bow range. 
and not audible range where he would smell me, if that makes sense. So I did a little, per- yeah, perfect. Sense. I did a little burp, little burp, a couple like that. And then I took my rattling antlers and I just started hitting branches, just light, just, you know, like a buck's in there. He's in his bedding area and he's over there and he's just making a little rub, you know, nothing, nothing like two bucks clashing, no big fight. You know, it's mid October, you know, I don't, yeah. And it's Michigan, you know, that's just probably not going to work. So I just, you know, clacked on some branches and stuff, made it sound super realistic. Didn't hear anything, didn't see anything. But from my experience, especially in Michigan, is a lot of times when you call, you don't get that immediate reaction because they've been called to a lot in most cases and they're just super cautious and it's not Iowa. So what I have had experienced, uh, I have experienced is sometimes these bucks will come and investigate later. Like they hear the sound, they didn't forget it. If it came from a spot that's, you know, where it's likely a deer would be, a buck would be, you know, that's real, that's realistic to them. If you didn't make some drawn out monster buck clashing fight and you made it sound realistic, it just adds to the realism. So I waited. And about 15 minutes later, I hear a buck in that little island of trees, and he's he's making a rub. So I hear branches, and I'm like, oh, my God, he's in there. And, you know, keep keep in mind, I have no idea what this deer looks like, right? All I, sure. all I had was a sign of a big track. Um, there were some rubs, but they weren't overly impressive. But I've seen nice bucks, you know, make medium-sized rubs, even small rubs. But the track itself is what I keyed in on. So I hear him, I hear him rubbing and he, he sounds like he's kind of fired up. And then I hear some footsteps. It's wet, you know, it's kind of wet in there around that little island. And I hear, you know, like water. And then I hear a snort wheeze and I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like he, he thinks, and you know, he's coming. Yeah. In. He thinks there's a buck in here. You know, he thinks there's a buck in his bedding area. So next thing I hear is just step, step step coming my way occasionally he stops rakes a tree and it's just every step is like a little slosh because it's, it's kind of like wet like i don't know like a couple inches of water and uh he's coming my way and i'm like oh my gosh here we go so i grabbed my bow and i was like i gotta i gotta see what he hit you know i gotta see what he is and he kind of steps out and i see like this really cool unique looking rack uh, he's got a really nice side on one that's just a like a perfect four, like a half of an eight. And then the other side is just this kind of weird, webbed, non-typical thing. And I was just like, yep, I'm shooting him. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, yeah. <laughs> I didn't have to take even a second look. He was super unique, uh, awesome public land deer, and there was just no doubt about it. So didn't care about his age or anything like that. It was just like, heck yeah, man, this is a freaking awesome hunt. So he comes out and he steps out in the opening. He's looking around and I'm just waiting. I get a good range and kind of where I think he's going to go. But he did exactly what I thought he was going to do. The way, the way my wind was blowing, it wasn't blowing towards him, but it was blowing like off kind of to the side. And the way he exited his bed and the way he came into me, he did a moon shape and tried to get downwind of where he thought that call was made. And the way it worked out is it kind of, he did that moon, but he didn't get quite downwind to me, but he did just about get downwind of where he thought that sound was. 
because I, I casted it kind of more upwind and tried to make it sound like it was more away from me. So I didn't like point the grunt call right at him, like, you know, like right at him where he could really pinpoint it. I casted it more upwind and I tried to sound softer and further away than what I really was. And I got to think that that helped because it, the way he came in and he circled downwind, he ended up right in my lap with like a 23 yard shot or something. But he turned broadside, drew my bow back, settled my pin and put it through both lungs, heard him crash. And uh, he was <laughs> super cool. One of my favorite deer. I mean, one of my favorite hunts too, because that was, I remember Justin and I both, we were like, we, we do this. Uh, are you familiar with the app called Polo? I am not. Okay, it's just this, it's an app where, you know, you turn it on, it's a video, right? Um, and you, you, you know, like we're always, him and I are always driving. So it's like, boom, you're, and you're just, you're just talking. It's like a video message, essentially. I mean, you could do it on text, but it just lives on Polo. Okay. And we do that back and forth, like talking, hunting, like all the time. And him and I had been complaining and bitching about our, you know, situation and he can't find a big deer and, Missouri and I can't find a big deer in Michigan and we're just like being crybabies together. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then this happened, right. And, uh, just completely turned the season around. I ended up having an awesome season after that, but it felt so good. But that, I mean, that's a perfect example right there of how in season scouting and just diving into a completely new area, finding what I was looking for, checking the layout of the land, looking at the map, seeing the wind direction and trying to come up with a plan of where I thought, you know, this deer is and how I could, how I could, you know, tackle the situation. Now I could have just backed out, waited for a better wind, you know, and came back and hunted where all that sign was. I mean, that is an option, but the sign told me, I mean, it was so fresh that some of those, those, uh, I think two of those scrapes had piss in them. I mean, like still wet, damp yeah, that's, spot. that's the night before the morning. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it, I knew he was there. I knew he was close. And then just kind of knowing what we know about mature buck bedding, the thicket made the most sense. It was the most secure, the most dense cover, and kind of overlooked. So, yeah, man, it, it worked out. It was a super cool hunt and uh, kind of felt like I made something out of nothing for, with that one. No, that's, that's a, one, an awesome story, and two, perfect illustration of, like you said, what in-season scouting can do for you. Again, kind of on the theme of this, right? Use some critical thinking. You made the, your best guess based on the map and what you had available where that buck was bedded. You knew what his likely route of travel was based on that uh, white oak that was still dropping, but knew for that wind you had to get somewhere else. And uh, the calling, kind of unconventional. Like you said, in Michigan especially, that I'm with you. That's a, a tactic that's much less likely to su- succeed than it is. But I think how you went about it. And uh, John Eberhardt, and this is going to be a, a transition into the next topic I want to talk about. But John, if you've read his books and I'm sure you have, or I know you've talked to John a bunch. Yep. I think he's a big proponent of, of the light calling, like the time ticking, the soft grunts, mm-hmm. um, especially in Michigan where, where the deer are just so call shy that it seems like if it's going to work, that's, that's usually how it works. Yeah, for sure. I, I have talked to him quite a bit about it. In fact, uh, he's, he's in the middle of writing a book and he had me write a couple stories and I wrote about that story. Oh, that's awesome. Because uh, that story, that story is a, a a perfect example of, you know, in season scouting, you know, calling to pressure deer. And then, um, really about how I use the wind, you know, in my favor, you know, to make that hunt successful. Cause he, you know, obviously he doesn't really pay attention to the wind, but he wanted 
he knows I do. He knows that, that I believe that the wind in certain situations puts deer in, in specific spots. And that's why I pay attention to it because I think it puts, it puts deer in my lap. It puts them likely into certain spots because of that wind direction, because of where the, you know, that thermal pole or whatever it is. And that's why I pay attention to it. And he wanted uh, some of those stories in the book. So I, I wrote about that one, but he, he, uh, he was telling me he last season, I think he rattled in 16 bucks oh, wow. in Michigan. And he said all of them were year and a half year olds, except for though he did shoot one of them that he say he thought was two or three years old. But so, yeah, I mean, you can do it. And it typically does not, you know, that, that buck I shot, I'm fairly certain was a, probably a three-year-old. I don't know for sure. But like some of my buddies saw it and I thought he was four, but it is uncommon to, to call in like a mature, like four year old plus deer. I mean, in Michigan is it's tough, but where I was and the way I went about it and the fact that I had kind of intruded into his bedding area, it probably made him real defensive and more likely to, to come check it out because I got into his, his lair, so to speak, undetected. And normally a human wouldn't be able to do that, but a deer could. Yeah. So it just, it just added to the realism. Great story. Really good story. Well, being a Michigan guy, I know you're obviously familiar with John's tactics. We talked about that. One of the things that I know about you and and in prepping for this podcast is that you've had a lot of success on good bucks on midday hunts in November. So in terms of terrain, what are your go-to setups for that type of hunt? And when are you accessing those areas? Are you coming in way early for an all-day sit? Are you coming in like after the does have bedded down for the day? Yeah, I've had a very high success rate with uh, midday hunts. And just like John says, like proportionally, the amount of, for the amount of all day sits I've done, the percentage where I've killed it is is quite high. Um, I've killed some of my biggest bucks right smack dab in the middle of the day, you know, between that 1030, I'd say 330 time frame. My, my biggest buck ever was November 5th at 330, like 325. Is that the, but a the lot 2006 of, buck? Yeah, yeah, 2006. Yeah, he scored. It was, it was the biggest uh, buck in the state with a bow that year, 172. And he's he's super cool. Uh, if you could, maybe tell that story because obviously that was a midday buck and that might be a great way to illustrate the point. Yeah, well, that one that one was a little different because so I was hunting. I was hunting in a completely different county um, that day. It was November 5th. It was my birthday. I was in a completely different county in one of my favorite spots, this river bottom that typically just heats up during the rut. I mean, it's, it's full of does. If you go there early October, mid-October, there's, there's, there might be a couple of young bucks in there, but it's, it's predominantly like doe groups bedded all through that river bottom. It took me a while, but what I learned was like, if you stay out of there and leave those does alone, you're in for a really good late October and first two weeks of November. So that's what I did. And I snuck in there and I was going to sit all day and I got into this, this tree. You kind of go along the river, you can uh, use river access. And it's one of those spots where you can get up, you know, crawl up the bank and you're, you're right there at your tree. So it's pretty bulletproof if you play the wind right, if the wind is good. And I got up in that tree and I was sitting there and I don't know, around 9 30 10 o'clock the wind started to shift a little bit and it started to blow me out into the river bottom as opposed to across the river 
And, you know, I'll sit it out for a minute when, when wind starts to shift like that. But if I look and it's like, okay, we're, we're really getting a, a like a big wind shift and it's going to be consistent, you know, I'll get down. I don't want to like burn it out. I'd rather just get down and, and, you know, live to fight another day. So I, I get down and um, get back to the car and I start thinking about where to go. And I remembered because I keep a journal of all my hunts. Um, so I have every hunt documented since 1997. The year prior, on November 4th, I had an encounter, you know, an hour away from where I was at with probably a 140-inch buck in this one spot. And I never saw him before. I never saw him after. But I knew a guy down there, and he worked at the steel factory. And um, he said all the guys from the steel factory would see this big buck, and they called him Big Mo. It was like the nickname. and I told him about that deer and he's like, yeah, I wonder if that was big Mo." And you know, it was just kind of like legend deer down there. And, uh, so I was like, you know what, I'm going to drive down there. You know, I saw this deer from then. I I saw this deer the year prior on November 4th. You know, why wouldn't he, perhaps he's back in that area again for the rut. So hadn't really hunted down there. Didn't have any cameras down there, nothing. So I drove down, took me about an hour to get there. And at that time, I was using a lone wolf on sticks. So I, I started out with the lone wolf and sticks, and I went out, and I started just kind of working through that area and covering some ground and just kind of trying to scout the edge. And I came to this spot, this corner, where this was right around like, you know, this was like noon, noonish. And I come to this corner where there's a big standing cornfield where it meets a corner of a woods and then a corner of uh, like a overgrown, like set aside field. So it's like a, it's kind of where all those three meet right in this corner. And I see three like massive rubs to this day, probably some of the biggest rubs I've ever seen in Michigan. And they look shredded and there were scrapes all around. And I'm like, Holy cow, you know, like this is like, you know, some really big buck sign. So, you know, this, this was back in my experimental days. <laughs> this was a small piece that I had permission to hunt. So did several other people. And, you know, I wasn't parked far away. So I had actually had my decoy in the back of the car. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to set my decoy up in this overgrown field. And it, it was it was at a time where I was trying everything. I have never been one to like this is my style and this is what I do every year and this works out and this is how I kill my bucks. Like I'm always trying new stuff and I was especially like that even back then. So I went back to the truck, grabbed my decoy, you know, and I'm thinking middle of the day, like, you know, this is still kind of fairly early. I mean, I've been hunting for a good 10 years, but like, you know, I, I had killed a couple midday bucks, but I wasn't, I wasn't that worried about like kind of going in and out, you know, it's middle of the day. It was, whatever. So I went back and got that decoy, set it up kind of upwind to me in that, uh, in that overgrown field. I climb up into a tree and, um, I'm sitting there and it was about three o'clock. I sat there for about an hour, nothing happened. And I get, but <laughs> this is funny because I end up calling this buck in too, but, um, <laughs> I so grab my rattling antlers and I start rattling. And this time I am like, I'm making more of a racket, like more of a fight. It's November 5th. You know what I mean? So I'm being a little more aggressive and I have had some success, you know, killing some, 
you know, early on some two and even some three-year-old deer uh, calling, you know, I, I, I hadn't up to that point killed like what I would consider like a mature deer in Michigan doing that. But I had had killed some nice bucks, you know, bucks that I, that were good early on in my career. And, um, I, I start hitting these antlers together and all of a sudden I just hear this like eruption in the standing corn. And what I think was, I think that buck was with a hot doe. This was, this was my opinion because this is the only thing that made sense. I think I was really close to where that deer was. And all of a sudden he hears like a couple bucks, like right there in his zone. And I think he was in there with a hot doe because I hear like these corn stalks just erupt and I'm like, grab my bow. And all of a sudden I look and I just see these, these antlers materialize out of standing corn and it's complete, you know, all of a sudden he just locks onto my decoy. And I'm like, holy shit. It was like the biggest thing I'd ever seen. He locks on the decoy and he stares at it for like 30 seconds. And then all of a sudden he just starts slowly like marching out to it. And I mean, just, you know, just like you see him do with a decoy. I mean, he comes right downwind between, between me and the decoy and gives me like a 15 yard shot and I ended up killing him. So that's how I killed my biggest Michigan buck right there is, is, I mean, using all the stuff that should never happen in Michigan. (laughs) I'll tell you what, that, (laughs) that deer and that hunt ruined me for like five years because I thought I had it figured out. I thought you just use the decoy and you just smash the antlers together every time. And, uh, you know, you're going to kill some giants. And I never did again with that strategy. I mean, I've killed them with a decoy and I've killed them rattling. But like, I thought like, you know, Hey, this is possible, you know? So I started doing that more and more and, and obviously didn't have much success with it. Um, hindsight being 2020 and, uh, Obviously, since then, all of the whitetail adrenaline DVDs have come out, and and Jared's kind of made that a science. But I mean, I'd have to think you're exactly right, given that exact situation. Probably a hot doe in there, and it's yeah. just it's just like most calling, right? If you find a buck that's in the right mood or receptive to it, it works. And when it works, it seems like it works phenomenally. But most times, it just doesn't work. Right. I think that's what made that situation. I think I think I was in his bubble and I think he had a doe and he heard some bucks and he was fired up already and he had to move 25 yards to see what it was. And he just poked his head out and boom, there's a, there's an intruder staring that, you know, right there staring in his face. Yeah. And it's just like, it just, it just happened to work out. So I don't think that's a great example of like my midday sits and my midday um, hunts, but mainly what I'm looking for, like on a midday spot, I'm looking for something that has a lot of things coming together. You know, a lot of things going for it, compounding features, a couple spots that come into mind. Um, There's a spot in Illinois, it's on some river bottom ground. And the way the river bends in this certain location, it creates a funnel. On the west side of this funnel is a clear cut. And then on the east side of this funnel is kind of like a big chunk of timber that it's got good young growth in it. I mean, it's got big trees. It's got, it's just, it's just a good chunk of timber that you can't see through. I mean, so there's plenty of understory, plenty of, you know, browse and good thick bedding thickets and, and whatnot. And then to the south of that river bend was a, a, another clear cut that was older. So like a, you know, much more grown up tree, high stem count, um, held a lot of does. So, Right in that location, I had clear cut of more of an early 
I mean, a more recent cut, but was grown up like over, you know, over my head growth to the South was one that was probably five, six years older than that. Both of them very good bedding. The one actually has some really good food in it because it was still, you know, a good height where deer could feed in it and bed in it. And then to the east was that, you know, just that big giant chunk of timber. And then the way the, this river, this river served as, you know, a good travel route and, and bedding area along the river bends and whatnot. And then it bend, it bended right there in between all those three. And then right where it bent, right where that river bend was, was a crossing where they could travel north to south, like right across that river. It was beat down. So right there, I had all these things that are attractive during the rut, good doe cover, food, you know, multiple bedding areas for, for does and, and bucks. And it was the rut. And that was a spot where I just had a lot coming together and I had a lot of success right in and around that area. Me and a couple of my buddies had. So, you know, I would sneak in there personally. I would get in there early uh, before daylight. I always tried to, at least in that location, I tried to get in there while I thought bucks were still out feeding. Uh, you know, and deer were still out feeding. I like to get back in the timber and get in that stuff and get settled in and then just let everything kind of come back through. There was another spot down in Iowa where it was a little more hill country. It wasn't like real steep hills, but it was significant hills. And there was a spot where all these ridges that kind of dumped down into one bottom. Like if you looked at it, excuse me, on a topo, you'd have multiple ridge like secondary ridges dumping down into the same general location and what would happen like when bucks started cruising they would come you know up and down these points and everything kind of crisscrossed right down in this bottom and because the bottom wasn't or it wasn't a real tight bottom it was kind of like a wide bottom maybe 70 80 yards wide and then there was a big hub scrape right down there, kind of where all those uh, secondary ridges dumped down into that same that same kind of general area. So I hunted there a few different times. And I drew Iowa. I've drawn it several times now, but there were two times in a row, like like one year and then like three years later, where I killed a mature buck on the very first sit in that spot. And then my buddy, I actually killed a buck my buddy went in there the very next day and, and shot one that was like, I don't know. It was, it was very big. It was a big non-typical. He, he thinks it was like in the one eighties and he hit it in the shoulder. Yeah. But that, those are two really good examples of spots where I think it, it's worth an all day sit. And some might argue like it's not worth sitting in one spot daylight to dark. And I get that. There's some spots where it might be good in the morning. Uh, maybe even, late morning, midday, and then, you know, towards the evening, you got deer kind of more working away from you. So you might be in for like a, a poor evening hunt. You might want to relocate to something that is more closer to food. There's certainly spots like that where you can still hunt all day, but you might want to kind of relocate for that afternoon sit. But those spots, I felt like the one, especially the one in Illinois with the clear cuts, there was food around, you know, with those clear cuts, there were deer kind of bedding in it feeding in it, kind of crisscrossing all through there, through that river bottom right where I was and crossing that river. So I felt like food was around. So it was, I felt like that was a kind of a high percentage sit all day long. But there are certainly situations where it's not like that, you know, and you might want to kind of relocate. But 
I have always been more of the type to get in there real early, you know, before it even starts tracking light. If I can, I'm not opposed to coming in at gray light, especially if I think like it's a situation where, you know, maybe I don't have as long of a walk and I feel like I can get in quieter and maybe bump less deer. If I come in at gray light where I can kind of see a little bit, or maybe even where I don't have a specific tree picked out yet. Maybe I, maybe I start my trek in the dark and then I kind of get into where I want to hunt at gray light and then I can kind of really see like, okay, this tree is best instead of like trying to climb up and, you know, to some tree I've never been in, in pitch dark and then it gets light and and you can't shoot anywhere. I've done that. Yeah. (laughs) That's always a fun experience. Yeah. Like what am I doing? Yeah. And then you tear it down and you know, you got to set it back up anyway. So I definitely have done the gray light thing, but if I have a tree picked out, like if I've done my scouting for some of these rut sits and both of those scenarios I had scouted thoroughly, you know, I didn't, I didn't necessarily have a tree prepped, but I had a tree picked out, you know, and I could go in there with a, with a saddle or a light hang on or whatever and get up in a tree. But those are kind of two classic examples. Another one is, uh, I talked about it earlier in the hunt, um, or in this podcast, I'm sorry, but that river bottom that gets really good during the rut. There's a spot in that river bottom where everything pinches down, you know, between the river kind of comes up close to a road and, and there's some fields, some ag fields kind of outside of that creek, uh, outside of that river bottom and everything pinches down. And, uh, it's a great all day sit. I mean, it's, it's fantastic because you got the, the ag fields around, but the, the deer are moving up and down that river. The bucks are moving up and down that river bottom all day long because it's loaded with dope. They're bedded everywhere through there, you know, and little pockets and they're all spread out. So it's, it's a great all day sit and you don't have to move and you don't have to relocate. So, you know, it's just finding those kind of magical spots that are good. Um, but I've just killed a, a pile of bucks midday and, uh, it's hard, you know, it's hard to sit, but I don't know, man, I just had, I have some friends that have like tried it like a dozen times and they never see anything midday. And I, I just don't, I don't know. I don't understand because I, I can't really think of too many sits during the rut where, you know, where the conditions were good, where it was nice and cool and the movement was good. Where I, I haven't seen some action, you know, where I and, and a lot of times I feel like I see good bucks move at midday. I feel like that's a, it's sort of a big buck, mature buck trait where, you know, a lot of times they'll come in and they'll bed down and then they'll wait for a lot of the does to get bedded, you know, which sometimes can be, you know, 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock even when you start getting into November. And then they get up and then they make the rounds and they're real efficient with their with their route. They don't want to be cruising all day long, but they'll make a, they'll do a quick efficient check of all these like these doe pockets and these doe bedding areas and um i've seen him do it i've seen him do it out in a marsh i've seen a big buck get up and he was probably close to a mile away when i first saw him and it was the most amazing thing i've ever seen he worked through this marsh he started about a mile away and within like five minutes he was 50 yards away from me and what he had done is he had went through this marsh and went downwind of every single island out in that marsh and he did it so efficiently and so quickly and just like that he was just disappeared you know but he had checked that whole marsh in in roughly five minutes 
and then he was just gone. I mean, he just bedded somewhere and just disappeared in the cattails. And it was, it was so cool. It was peak rut. And I mean, that told me right there, it was like, man, they are so efficient, but they, he did exactly what mature bucks do. You know, he let the, the does bed, he got up, made a quick route and uh, was super efficient with it. And then he either bedded down or, you know, he went to a new area and did the same thing. I don't know. I just lost track of them, but it was, it was really cool to see that, but that's a, that's a mature buck behavior. So if you're not there to capitalize on it, you're missing that. I think bucks in general do that, but I've more times than not, when I see a deer cruising kind of midday, it's, it's usually a good buck. Yeah. And that's the point I was going to make is I think I've got friends, like you mentioned that, that have tried it, can't get behind it. And it's very unconventional. I think for the, you know, in comparison to the rest of the deer season, you don't see many deer because the only deer you typically see are, are breeding bucks. And it's not like, especially in Michigan, there's a ton of those, but it's one of those things where if you, uh, put some faith in it and do it a few times and you're in the right area. I mean, you gave some great characteristics of what that right area looks like. A lot of converging terrain features, something that could be a bedding and maybe like a browsing feeding area. I definitely agree on all those fronts. If you're in the right area that time of year and and you do it a few times, it's definitely a productive tactic. So want to get one more thing on that before we move on. You mentioned November 5th, that's your birthday and you killed your largest Michigan buck. So obviously that's one of the days you'd be doing a midday set. Give me one or two others. So if someone's listening and they haven't got on the midday hunt train, uh, November 5th would be one day to put on there. Give me two other ones. The very next day, November 6th, it might be hard to believe this, but I've killed five or six bucks on November 6th. And I'd I'd have to look back, but I want to say like four of those were kind of those midday hours, meaning after 10 before three, I feel like anywhere in that window. And I, and I, I do use that kind of November 5th as like a starting point. I've killed them midday on a Halloween. I've killed them midday on November 2nd. But for some reason, it kind of seems like, you know, that November 5th through 12th time frame, you know, even into, even into the, you know, November 15th, you know, even in Michigan, like that kind of opening day gun. I mean, things get really shut down there, but I see, I even see good, um, midday movement then what I do tend to focus more on as we get into more of that mid-November more of that kind of peak rut where where most of the big bucks are locked down you know where, where those big ones just aren't on their feet they're not covering ground I tend to sneak more into those doe bedding areas get up high sit all day you know because somewhere where you can see far like those river bottoms some of those marshes those can be really good and you're, you're not, you're not necessarily capitalizing on, you know, this big four or five year old buck, like covering a mile, but what you, what you, what I've witnessed and what I've had success with is like, you see this big buck out there with a doe, you know, and they stand up and they don't stay bedded all day. Like that doe is up, you know, he's getting a little too close. She's not quite ready. He's bumping her around a little bit. She smells good. So other bucks are kind of, younger bucks are kind of moving in then you see the big guy stand up and kind of walk this guy off. It's like, that's what you're trying to see. That's what you're trying to capitalize on. I shot a real big buck uh, in Michigan last year. Um, real big one. And that's exactly what he was doing. You know, November 15th, he was, he was out there in that uh, river bottom system and uh, he was with a hot doe and I was sitting up high and sitting. it wasn't quite midday. It was more, 
more late mornings. But if, if I had sat through the midday, like, and that had not shot, shot him, you know, he would have been right out there midday moving around and, and bumping that. He wasn't really bumping the door around. What happened was there was other bucks kind of creeping in a little close and then he'd get up and he was kind of standing guard. But, you know, that can give you a really good opportunity to sneak in close, reset up, uh, you know, going for a stalk or, or maybe you can kind of see where they're trending, where they're kind of where he's pushing her to or, or kind of general movement. And then you can reloc- relocate and get in front of it. Or if you anticipate where she's going to go to feed later or something like that can lead to a good hunt. So as I get more into that mid October, I, I really try to gravitate more towards those doe bedding areas or towards those areas where bucks like to push does as opposed to like kind of trying to capitalize on those long, those longer uh, travel route funnels, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And it's funny because it proves how drastically things change in the deer woods. It's like um, my observations are real similar to yours. That first flurry in November, like you said, 5th to the 10th, 5th to the 12th, that same kind of activity where we're seeing that frantic search for the, you know, where, where the big wave of the bell curves of the does are coming into heat. And then when you get kind of that peak of the curve a week later, it's uh, it's different. You got a lot less of that seeking, running long miles activity and a, and a lot more of that localized, um, you know, where, where a buck's got a doe locked down in a, in a breeding area. Yeah. Hey, Andy, we're, we're running up uh, definitely on time here. Well, I want to say two things. One, appreciate all your time. It was a pleasure to get you on here. Like I said, long time coming, but uh, definitely worth the wait. I think there's ton of valuable information i do have one more question before i let you off the hook and uh, this is something i like to ask everybody so quick one here if you're looking back now i think you're you're mid 40s early 40s if you're looking back to 18 year old andy may give him one or two tips that are gonna increase his success the most and then give him one or two mistakes to avoid yeah i would say um 18 year old andy explore more areas i think you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old Andy had two or three spots, you know, that he kind of focused on, and then he just kind of hunted between those. And I killed nice bucks back then, but I killed the best bucks that those areas had to offer, you know, at best. And a lot of times, you know, those weren't fully mature deer, obviously. You know, there were some two-year-old deer and maybe maybe occasionally a three-year-old deer, but a lot of like 100-inch deer or something like back then, that, that a lot of times was the biggest buck in the area or the biggest buck on that piece of ground that I could find, and, and that's what I killed. So I was a little more narrow-focused then, but understandably because I was a newbie. Sure. You know, I would tell Andy to explore way more areas, spread that net out further, and inevitably find some better deer, you know, the wider you spread that net. I've always been a real intense scouter, even back then, maybe even more so back then. So, um, that's what I would say. And then the other one was what, what mistakes to avoid, right? Yeah. Um, I would probably, gosh, I probably would, would teach young Andy the correct way to shoot a bow. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, it's, it's weird. Um, I picked up a bow. I've told this story, but I, I picked up a bow 
and was became obsessed with archery. Like I love archery. Like if you took hunting away, I would still shoot my bow. It's like a form of meditation for me. I like the more I practice, the better I get. You know, I see those results. And I was quite good with a bow right from the bat. I got in some some leagues. This was down in Jackson County. And if you know anything about Jackson County, the the hunting culture down there is, is really big. We got one of the biggest archery shops in the whole state of Michigan. They ran these big leagues, tons of killers down there, really good, experienced bow hunters. And I come in as a complete new archer and just torch everybody, you know, shooting these really high scores. And I'm just naturally good at it. But I was shooting the bow completely wrong, punching the trigger, not realizing that I was developing some really bad habits. Yes, I was super accurate. I didn't know any better. Just using a terrible release, bad form, and just punching that trigger and hitting the middle. Well, yeah, I started killing some deer, and then I missed some deer, and then I wounded some deer, and just thought, like, man, this is tough. I need to practice more. So I practiced more the same way, developed more bad habits. Then I'd kill some deer, then I'd wound some more deer, then I'd miss some more deer. And it was just like, man, okay, you know, I got to practice more. I got to practice further. So then I started backing up to 40 yards, 50 yards, 60 yards. And now it's like you start shooting long range while you're trying to punch the trigger and your, your perceived movement at those longer distances, that pin is really dancing around because now your target's further away. It looks smaller. So the perceived movement of your pin is even more. And now it's like, oh man, that pin is like, it's on target, it's off target, it's all over the place. And now it's like, I got to time it right when it hits that spot, boom. So then now I'm practicing these bad habits even more so because I'm trying to, I feel like if I could shoot, you know, at 40, 50, 60, it's going to make these 20 yard shots even easier. And theoretically it should, if you're not punching the trigger and and developing the worst case of target panic known to man. (laughs) You know, so what I was doing was really practicing, you know, really bad form, really bad shot execution and just totally ingraining that into my shot execution. And anytime I was put into a high pressure situation, like shooting at a big deer, more times than not, I'm not hitting exactly where I want to aim. I still killed a lot of deer, but I had a lot of gut shots, a lot of liver hits. You know, some through the lungs, some were perfect, some wounds, a lot of misses. You know, I did that for years and years where out of every 10 bucks I shot, I was probably recovering six or seven of them. And then out of those six or seven, I probably gut shot four of them. You know, so, you know, I was having my buddies out, leaving them overnight, trying to find them the next morning. And then, yes, we'd find them. And then I started to figure out like, okay, I got a problem here. You know, I, I got some really bad target panic, got really bad for a couple of years where I was missing like multiple big deer and I just had no control of my shot. And that's when I started doing the research, figuring out there's lots of guys that have the same issue as, as I do, sought out the, the proper, you know, resources. And there's people out there that kind of helped me figure out, diagnose what I had going on. And then I did the work to fix it and learn to properly shoot a bow. And, uh, you know, now things are much better. Um, not that I'm like cold as ice. I still get nervous. I still get riled up even after all these years and, and having a lot of success. I still get super excited. But now I'm able to execute a much more calm shot, a much more reliable shot, 
I don't punch the trigger anymore. So a lot less wounded deer, less missed deer, usually shorter track jobs. So that's, that's probably <laughs> what I would, I would probably tell a young Andy to get his stuff figured out a little quicker. <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, it's funny because I think the more excited deer hunting makes you, I mean, you know, a lot of guys will say, Oh, I, I never had target panic or I never get buck fever. I mean, I don't, I don't personally believe that maybe that's yeah. the case, but I feel like the more deer hunting gets you excited, the more susceptible you are to that. Um, and, and everybody's got to go through their own journey to, to get through that. Of I mean, I've done the same thing, missed deer, wounded deer. It's like, you got to figure out a way to execute a shot under pressure and, and everybody gets there a little different, but, um, yeah, that's, yep that's all i had which i say that's all i had but we're, we're going on two hours here so i want to thank you again uh great content a lot of uh, obviously super informed answers from a place of a lot of experience so appreciate your time andy and uh last thing if people want to learn more about you or read your articles what's the best places to find you online thanks man i appreciate you having me on you, you do an awesome job really easy to talk to you ask some great questions so really fun conversation. I have a Instagram account. Um, I post some stuff on there. It's bow hunting dad. I have been working with a company. Um, it's called hunt better. It's uh, us. And I've been putting uh, some content on there, but it's an awesome resource, an awesome learning resource. There's some cool sections on there. Uh, one of them, which is break down the hunt where Guys like me, um, some other really good killers. Uh, Justin Wright is going to have some stuff on there. He's got some stuff there on there, on there already, but some really accomplished hunters where they kind of break down specific hunts for, for deer that they think are kind of a good learning opportunity where we break down the maps, what the deer did, what the hunter did, why he did what, what the conditions were, wind direction, all that stuff, and try to make it a very good learning experience. There's cool, uh, sections um one called conversations where you know two real experienced hunters just sit down at a campfire and just talk for hours and hours and hours and the things recorded and wherever the conversation goes it's just kind of just a natural a natural uh, conversation between guys with a lot, a lot of experience maybe some different experiences and a lot of knowledge shared there um among other things there's a field guide where me and guys like Steve Shirk and Rendell Eric and uh, Nathan Killen, you know, guys, public land killers, um, where they kind of take you along on their scouting missions and they film little clips of what they're finding, why it's uh, interesting to them, how they read the woods and kind of, kind of just document their process of, of scouting and preparation and things like that. So there's a, a lot of cool things, a lot of new things coming. But the reason I decided to be a part of that was because the thing that Hunt Better is trying to focus on is woodsmanship and trying to preserve the culture of woodsmanship. So you won't be hearing a ton on technology, not a lot on trail cameras. I mean, we all use trail cameras, yes, but the focus really is more on reading sign, uh, developing instinct, reading the woods, knowing your, your food sources, knowing how deer, our deer uh, utilize terrain and 
different types of areas and different parts of the country. And it's, it's really focused on preserving that culture of woodsmanship. Cause I think, I think we're getting away from that somewhat these days. You know, if you watch a lot of these shows and a lot of social media, it seems like anymore, it's uh, a lot of cell cameras and a lot of more surveillance, you know, at a food source or a corn pile and yeah, food plot or something like that. So, which is fine, you know, it's legal. And, and if guys are doing that and they're having a blast then I'm happy for them, but I personally feel kind of pulled in a direction to kind of help preserve what got us here, you know, as hunters and, and what it means to be a hunter and to have those skills and those woodsmanship skills. I don't want those to be lost. And I, I feel like they need to be talked about and stressed and uh, preserved. So that's what Hunt Better is trying to do. And uh, hopefully a lot of exciting things coming down uh, the pipe with, with Hunt Better. So happy to be a part of that. Um, so you can check that out too. Awesome. Well, hey, Andy, thanks again. And uh, really appreciate the time. Good luck this fall and, and we'll be following along. All right. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it.